The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio in association with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Justin Briley, senior editor of that title. And if you'd like a free sample copy of the mag, we'll send you one absolutely free if you visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And it's a great joy to be joined on The Profile this afternoon by Andy Crouch. He is the author of The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. He has been the executive editor of Christianity Today magazine in the USA, and he has all kinds of interesting friends and ways to influence people as well. So we're (laughs) going to be meeting Andy in the course of today's programme. Don't forget the profile available as a podcast too. Simply go to our podcast page. That's premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Andy Crouch, welcome along to the programme. Thank you, Justin. I'm so happy to get to talk today. I know, because we've sort of, <laughs> on different, it's been sides, way too long. different sides of the Atlantic, yes. but doing similar stuff yeah. in, in, different, you know, in, in our ways. You've edited a magazine, I edit a magazine, you, you appear on podcasts, we sometimes appear on the same podcast, um, and then we've been in touch. You're with basically the cooler, better looking version <laughs> the, of me. Not Justin. in the least, not by like what I'm wearing today compared to your outfit. But the, um, no, it, you're, it, it's lovely to meet you, and yeah, because like I've, I've read your stuff, listened to your voice, and now be able to sit down opposite you is, is great. Um, but this is a program where we kind of go back to the start. I want to obviously... Yes end up talking about your most recent project, the TechWise family. But uh, tell us about your growing up. Were were you born into a Christian household? So like so many people, I think, of my generation in the U.S., I was born into a family that was in some ways nominally Christian and often church-going. But I would have had a really hard time saying as a child or as a teenager what um, difference that made for my family. So I really came to faith... uh, It felt at the time, certainly, on my own uh, in my teenage years in high school Um, and quite, in fact, in opposition to my family. Uh, Though, of course, you know, you look back on these uh, kind of churched upbringings and it's more complex than that, really. Mm. And there were people who invested in me in various ways in my Christian life um, early in my life. Um, But uh, when I was 13, I made a very conscious decision that felt very different from the Christianity around me, which was kind of sure. nominal mm. to actually embrace this for myself. And, and your parents were a bit confused by the newly zealous The newly Andy. Z- <laughs> oh, that, yeah, That's exactly what I was. And I mean, oh my gosh. I remember telling them they shouldn't give any more money to the church because God didn't want their money because they weren't real Christians. And I mean, all these I, I, lovely things. I wonder whether things. the church agreed with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it was rocky, it was very adolescent, and it was also very real. And I happened in a very secular part of the United States. As you know, some parts of the United States are are quite culturally Christian, but uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where we were living, was Mm -hmm. not so at all. Mm -hmm. But in this uh, town that we were living in uh, was this little group of very serious uh, young uh, high school Christians who every other Tuesday night would get together And for two hours, uh, with no adult supervision, no adults even suggesting this, for an hour they would just share what was going on in their lives and then for an hour sit there and pray together. And I found my way into this little group of kids, and God met us in very real, powerful ways Mm. um, (laughs) with no adult supervision and sometimes a lot of crazy teenage stuff going on too. (laughs) But it was also very, very real. Uh, So that was my Mm. initiation into Christian faith. I guess uh, university followed, and uh, it eventually, I think you did classics, was it? At right. University. Which I did because eventually some adult supervision came along, and it was this <laughs> local youth ministry, and, and the, they took us in, did, I think, something really wise. They had uh, us, you know, high schoolers in, doing in depth study, kind of line by line of scripture. And mm. one of them had studied Greek in, in seminary. Uh-huh. And so he would turn to his Greek New Testament. And I remember thinking as a kid, oh, if I could read Greek. <laughs> then I would be a real Christian. Like, then I would have access to the very words of God, right? So then, of course, when you actually study Greek, you find out the New Testament is written in horrible Greek. Like, it's, it's such bad, especially like Mark doesn't even sound like he barely speaks the language. And um, so I actually then fell in love with classics just on its own merits, mm, right? Mm. Just the, the riches of especially Greek literature, Latin as well. Um, 
but it started with this kind of uh, completely. And then the other thing you find out is our English translations are really good. Yeah. <laughs> and and when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's what it says in the original Greek. The yes. difficulty is not in the translation. <laughs> it's in realizing this is actually what he said. Yes. So yes. total failure in making me more holy or giving me some jump start on that. <laughs> but actually classics was a but, wonderful thing But at thing least you're one of those people who, when they're speaking or preaching, can genuinely say in uh, the original in the or- Greek. <laughs> In the original Greek, it says exactly what you can read in your own Bible 99% of the time. <laughs> so um, I guess, how would you say your Christian faith developed as you grew up into your late teens, 20s, and so on? I think it was a, a adding layers of what the faith is about. And, uh, you know, I almost think of it in terms of, of the Shema Israel. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Christian community that I came into as a, as a teenager in high school was a charismatic Christian community that was really good on the kind of heart mm. um, and the, the, the kind of sense of personal connection to God and to the community. Uh, so that was really healthy, but there was not much of the mind in it, honestly. Mm. I got to university and very fortunately had some campus ministers who started handing me books uh, by Jacques Ellul and mm. books of liberation theology from mm. Latin America and uh, just an amazing array of uh, Eugene Peterson, mm. uh, who's best – he's known now for the message. But, but he's done amazing other work. But his yeah, early yeah, books, yeah. Uh, like A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, are these just deep, literarily wise um, – explorations of Christian faith. And so that opened up, I think, my mind and got my mind engaged. And then I had the great fortune to apprentice as a musician in an African-American church. I'm, uh, you can see, but people mm. watching the podcast or listening on the radio can't see, I'm not black. <laughs> uh, but I, I got into this uh, black church, um, which is, of course, a very rich tradition in the United mm. States, rooted in a great deal of pain and, and tragedy and evil, really. And yet out of that uh, very bitter soil has come the incredible fruit of the black church. And Mm. I happened to uh, be a musician and was able to work in that church as a musician and learned black gospel as a, as a pianist, as a keyboard player. But also I think it actually gave me soul, uh, which is kind of the, the, the ability that is present in the black church to bring the fullness of self in worship Mm. Mm. that most expressions of white Christian uh, Christianity in the U.S. and many other places I've been don't have that same soul. It, it sounds like you were able to really broaden your horizons of what the church is then, oh, because I, my feeling is so. here in the U.K. and I'm sure even more so probably in parts of the U.S. You can get into a bubble where you think your your way of doing it is yes, the only way. Yes, and I think many people kind of go with whatever their first experience was mm. of Christianity and think, well, that's pretty much what Christianity yeah. is, and either it works for you or it doesn't. Mm. But then you just if you keep going, mm. you discover these layers um, that complicate your life in all kinds of ways, but also open up like how deep and rich this faith is. Yeah, absolutely. And alongside this was your journey at some point, I assume, towards a more journalistic writing kind of career, because I think you were involved in campus ministry and that kind of thing initially before you you went down that path. So tell us about that journey. So the journey into journalism and writing kind of came out of a little bit of um, boredom, I might say. I was working with undergraduate students in campus ministry, which in some ways is still my favorite thing I've ever done. But the only thing about undergraduate students is that they're the same every year. And you're (laughs) growing and changing over 10 years, right? But uh, freshmen, we call them in the U.S., uh, freshmen are freshmen every year. (laughs) It's the same (laughs) developmental stage. So I don't know if you have Groundhog Day in the U.K., but we have this idea. I've seen this. Here Every year it comes going. again. Yeah, yeah. So I was just starting to feel a little intellectually restless. Mm. And um, there was a, a startup magazine called Regeneration uh, that was started by some young adult Christians who were in all different professions. They were not professional Christians. They were Christian professionals, you might say. Mm. And they wanted to explore kind of the full range of cultural, political, social topics that the gospel might address. And they were looking for writers, and so I just volunteered to write. I think I sent in a book review of a book by Alistair McGrath, <laughs> and they printed it without changing a word, which <laughs> to a writer, this has never happened to me since, but to a writer, that's like crack cocaine or something. I mean, to be not edited and just have someone publish your words. So I started writing for that magazine, eventually got involved in editing it, uh, t- took it over with a couple friends, um, and was sort of off into this new world of trying to put into um, – crisp, clear language, uh, the most important things happening in our culture and how the gospel speaks to them. Yeah, amazing. 
This eventually took you to uh, several years editing Christianity Today, which, right. of course, um, was, I think, first established by Billy Graham back yes. in the 1950s. Yeah, 55 or so, so years yeah. ago, yes. And continues to be a very influential publication in the USA. Um, I guess um, that came with all kinds of joys and challenges along the way. Yeah. What, what were your sort of um, some of the highlights from your time at the magazine? So the highlights, I mean, all relate to the, um, the the incredible breadth and at its best, the incredible strengths of kind of broadly speaking, the evangelical Protestant world in the United States, which um, has a lot of shadow sides and downsides. So mm. we could talk about that as well. Mm. But uh, in my work, I got to meet uh, really some of the brightest people, some of the deepest people, maybe most importantly, some of the most courageous people. Mm. Uh, and we, and of course, as a magazine, what you get to do is tell their stories yeah. and kind of spread their voice and mm. amplify their voice. Mm. So those were the great days. Um, who, who was, if you had to choose one or two people who you met, interviewed, and they just left a real mark with you, who, yeah. who, might, who might you think of? Well, two come to mind. Um, I mean, out of many, many yeah, I could name. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, International Justice Mission, which is a human rights organization founded by someone who's become a very good friend, Gary Haugen, um, getting to tell Gary's story and IJM's story, um, which is a story of uh, Gary sent uh, to Rwanda after the genocide to investigate it on behalf of the United Nations, mm. trained as a lawyer at Harvard and University of Chicago, came back and said, we need a deeply Christian response to Mm. violence, really, Mm. in the world, and violence directed, as it almost always is, against the poor, and the complete failure in many parts of the world of legal systems to protect the poor. Mm. This has become one of the most influential human rights organizations in the United States, and to some extent globally, and it happens to be this profoundly Christian effort where they start every day in prayer. Mm. Um, uh, Every employee of IJM begins the day with, uh, I think, 20 minutes of silent prayer at their desk, and then at 11 a.m., all around the world, Uh, everyone stops whatever they're doing and they pray together uh, day after day. Um, Mm. And so it's not just um, sort of vestigially Christian or nominally Christian. They have this sense we cannot do this work unless it's uh, empowered by prayer and dependence on God. But it is not narrowly or sectarianly Christian. It it has a public goal. It Mm. engages with Mm. public Mm. life and ultimately seeks to strengthen institutions of public life, the the justice system and civil society and so forth. So I would say Gary and IJM's story in my lifetime is just one of the most encouraging things and getting to tell that story along the way. Uh, Then a a different kind of story would be Bishop Claude Alexander, who uh, eventually joined our board at CT, but I met him before that. And he pastors a historic black church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm. Uh, As you know, uh, the the story of race in America is like this two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes it feels like the other way around. And uh, Bishop Alexander is a very significant leader in a city with a very complex racial history. And yet he is this incredible bridge builder and opportunity seeker to kind of re-knit the fabric of Mm. relationship in a a southern U.S. city. So I think about leaders like that. I think about NGOs and organizations like Gary's and IJM. And uh, it's just so encouraging when you see the gospel kind of being lived out in that way. Absolutely. I, I'd concur myself. That's that's uh, those are definitely the highlights of being able to meet so many interesting, brilliant, inspiring people. There are challenges, of course. Do you want to? Do you feel <laughs> able to share? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, no, I can share the on the record challenges <laughs> because they're absolutely there, and a lot of it has to do with the fractious nature of Protestantism, really. Yes. Mm. So we were founded, as you mentioned, by Billy mm. Graham, and Billy Graham had this unique. Uh, I mean, genius, I would have to say, at holding together a coalition that Mm. came to be called evangelical Protestantism in the United States. That was really a word in the United States from the 19th century, really borrowed from uh, Great Britain. Um, It had sort of fallen out of use. The fundamentalists had become sort of the conservative wing of Protestantism. Mm. But the fundamentalists themselves, uh, you know, kept excommunicating one another (laughs) and splitting into smaller and smaller factions. And Billy Graham and others in the post-World War II era um, come of age in the United States, and they 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 re knit back together um, a kind of center mm. um, that is not defined by judgmentalism, is not defined by withdrawal from the world or hostility toward the world, uh, but is animated by this sense of call to proclaim the gospel mm. and to live the gospel. Mm. But that center is 
is constantly, I think, under threat yes. uh, and under kind of uh, fractious pressure. Mm. And and as Billy Graham and his generation ex- exit the stage, there is not a similarly galvanizing figure or even movement to mm. hold that center together. And CT still aspires to occupy that center, yes. but we are constantly, <laughs> if you can put it this way, outflanked on, I, I don't, you know, right and left are not, they're mm. metaphors from politics. Yes. They're not really yeah. quite right for the church, but yeah. to some extent they are. Yeah. We're outflanked by these forces that, uh, that attract a lot of energy, yes. attract a lot of media attention, yeah. but are often irrational at their yeah. fringes and very divisive, even at their best. So that is tough to hold that center absolutely. when when the yeah. fringes are getting mm. all the kind of mm. attention. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it brings me on to the whole question of, of journalism because uh, yeah. I, I think uh, we were having a chat before we came on air uh, and my deputy editor, Sam Hales, was saying that you're responsible for a definition of the word journalism <laughs> or journalist, which, uh, which he has always carried with him since. Uh, I'm not even sure what it is. So would you like to say what you think it is? <laughs> you can see if it describes what you think you do. <laughs> uh, but my definition of journalism, I think the broadest definition, is making complicated things clear quickly for people who could be doing something else <laughs> uh, in the service of truth. So let me break it down a bit. Okay. So this distinguishes us from other kinds mm. of work. So okay. I would distinguish journalists who make complicated things clear from, uh, let's say, scholars who tend to make clear things complicated. <laughs> now, I know that's not fair. Uh, the truth is the world is very complicated. We need scholars yeah, to examine yeah. it. But my job as a journalist is to come along after the scholars, mm-hmm. account for the complexity they've uncovered or, or described, mm. but then put it back in clear terms. Yes. My job is to be clear as a journalist and then to do it quickly. So teachers make complicated things clear, mm-hmm. but they have maybe a whole term to sure. teach in, right? Yeah. But you, you have to do it. I have to do it right now in uh, 20 Within odd minutes. a thousand words or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. We have to do it so fast. A thousand page on, uh, words on a page, two minutes of video, whatever. Uh, and then we have to do it for people who could be doing something else. They could turn <laughs> away at any moment. Like, why are you still listening? Yeah. And I have to be asking that at the end of every sentence, every paragraph, every page. Why are you even turning the page? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, the interesting thing is advertisers do all of that, <laughs> but they do it in the service of a product. And what journalists and do it and profit, you could mm. say, but journalists do all this in the service of truth. And this is what makes us complicated in any community is that we are not an advertising agency for the church at a magazine like CT mm. or mm. Premier. Mm. We're not here just as a PR firm to yeah. show you, you know, like we talked about, yeah. I told you about uh, Christianity at its best in the United States, but we're not just there to mm. tell it at its best. We're there to tell the whole truth. Yeah. So this makes us, you know, kind of, complicated guests at any party (laughs) or any meeting when you find out the journalist is in the room because that person is not there simply to serve the interests of kind of the established world. We're there to do justice to whatever as best we can tell it as we see it. I think it's a wonderful definition and one that I I actually think is at its best what journalism is. The problem, of course, (laughs) is, is we live in an age where the goals, oh. perhaps, of journalism are shifting significantly. Completely. And, and it's, it's all tied in with the book you've written anyway, The, the Techwise Family. But, but generally speaking, the drive now to be the first to, yes. quote-unquote, report a story is driven more by the clicks, by the websites, by the social media. And a lot of people are worried, I think, that we're losing journalism in its true form for something which is actually something a quite different beast. Wow. Absolutely. And... And one way to think about it, I think, is in terms of um, covenant, actually. So a covenant is a kind of a durable bond of an agreement between people. I mean, there's probably a better definition, but let's work with that. And it used to be that, that editors and producers of journalism had a kind of covenant with their audience expressed through a subscription often, right? Mm. So when you think about print journalism, and of course you do still have this, uh, uh, people sign up uh, and they subscribe – and then the kind of agreement or understanding is I'm now entrusting my, my attention and time to you, the editors, and I trust you to kind of decide what I might want to read about and be interested in. This is completely collapsing in the era of omnipresent data and in the era of online journalism where uh, the most dispiriting thing about CT, honestly, was that I knew exactly what everyone was clicking on, right? <laughs> we have complete data when you click on a story Mm. how many people click and then because we paginate our Mm. stories we don't give it to you all on Mm. one page um partly so we can sell more ads alongside it 
we know how many people click from page one to page two. It mm. is a tiny fraction. Yeah. So if I write even a thousand words, mm. we would paginate that into two pages. Mm. You discover that most people actually just read the headline. Yep. A few people read the first page. 30% perhaps go on and finish the piece. Yes. And this turns completely upside down. What was this kind of covenantal relationship? Mm. We will do our best as editors and journalists to give you a, a truthful account of the world. Now the tail is wagging the dog. Now mm. we're constantly measuring what are you liking? What are you clicking mm. on? How can I give you more? How can mm. I make you click more? Mm. Which has very little to do with making complicated things clear yes. in, in the service of truth. Yeah. So it's been totally turned upside down. That covenant has collapsed. Um, people now click on things that sort of stir some little bit of either uh, delight or outrage. And if you looked at the web statistics for CT, you'd say what Christians in America care about are celebrities and controversy. And yes. if we had stories about cats, that would be the other thing. <laughs> I mean, cats are big on the internet, right? But we don't do much with cats. But celebrities and controversy are the clickable things. Yeah. And if you aren't very careful, you end up doing all your work writing about that. And yet those are the least illuminating things in some ways in our world. And I guess the next obvious question is, can we fight that tide in any way? Because it feels like the the digital internet revolution and all, all of its positives, but all of its negatives, are almost an unstoppable force. Huh. We can't fight it on its own terms. And I don't know if we can win, but we must fight it. And I don't just mean you and me, professional journalists. I mean, the community of people who want to live, I mean... Ultimately, you want to live covenantally in this world, who want to have a deeper connection to one another and really a deeper connection to our neighbors than social media and, and kind of um, demand-driven, consumer-driven media are giving us. To what extent is the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States a result of that very form of media? Exhibit A. It is the prime example. Because in many ways, Donald Trump went entirely around uh, the, the old forms of media. Mm. Now, I, I understand why people are disillusioned with those old forms. Uh, they often are captive to a certain ideology. They're often very blinkered. Um, I mean, when, when some of our national newspapers report on parts of the country that aren't their home turf, where I've spent time, like the southeastern U.S., they get it so wrong in tone, mm. in content, mm. in mm. substance. So I understand why people were very disillusioned with that. But what that allowed to happen is for Donald Trump using largely Twitter. I mean, it mm. comes down to Twitter, which he is in one sense a master of, to completely bypass this, amass his own support base. But not amass it in the service of truth, not amass it, in my judgment, with, with any wisdom of any kind, um, but with a kind of pushing the right buttons of people's frustration, disappointment, fear. And, and that is why we have the president we have in the United States. You don't sound like a fan. <laughs> um, oh, no, I'm on record. Uh, I wrote a rather scathing uh, editorial <laughs> and, <laughs> before and, the election. And yet, so they say... Um, Many Christians voted for him, uh, that he wouldn't have necessarily been voted in, were it not for white evangelicals in the USA. Yeah. Well, OK, it's a huge topic and we've only got about two <laughs> minutes more left of to this section of the program. But OK, what do you what do with is that? Going on? Yeah, what's going on? There are several groups that all had to swing to Trump uh, for him to win. So mm -hmm. I, I do want to say that narrative that it was only the white evangelicals. In fact, white evangelicals voted for him at the same exact level they voted for other Republican okay. candidates for the last mm -hmm. 20 years, really, uh -huh. uh, since Bill Clinton, who was the last Democrat to yeah. get a real shift in that yeah. vote. So they really just maintained their support. Other groups were the swing. But it is none the case, none, nonetheless the case, that 80 percent of self-identified white evangelical Protestants voted for Donald Trump and that they remain among his most kind of loyal mm. uh, supporters to this day. Even when every scandal uh, under the sun seems to uh, emerge. Uh, yes. Yes. So why is this happening? It's, it's uh, first of all, because there are kind of two realities to evangelical Christianity in the U.S. and they're, they're regional. There's a northern reality, which is really where CT is. We're mm. based in Chicago, which mm. is a, a northern U.S. city. But there's also this uh, southern uh, Christianity that is very connected with being white, I would have to mm. say. Um, that is also part of a very disenfranchised and often mocked group of Americans. They're mocked for their accents. They're mocked for their mm. diet. Mm. They're mocked for their preference in sports. They like mm. NASCAR and mm. car racing rather than mm. soccer, for mm. goodness sakes, uh, football, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
And they saw and see in Trump not a fellow Christian. They, they're not, they don't mm. have any illusions. Mm. So, in fact, uh, for many, many years, if you asked all these, all these evangelicals, um, is personal morality important in a president? They would say yes. Mm. And now they say no. Yes. That's, that's not because they're hypocrites. It's because they've realized, oh, we have a president that, that speaks for us, but mm. he's not one of us, and he mm. doesn't share our morality. So it's not that they think he's a crypto-Christian. Sure. But they do think he's protecting their interests mm. against an elite that doesn't care. All right. So that's what's going on. And until there's an elite that does care, uh, Donald Trump will still continue to do very well among a certain kind of evangelical Christian. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're having a fascinating conversation in today's edition of The Profile with Andy Crouch. He's a former executive editor of Christianity Today magazine in the USA and author of The TechWise Family, among other book titles. And we're going to be talking to Andy in the next section of today's show about that book and uh, how, as a father himself, he managed to, I guess, stem the tide of constant digital distraction. Uh, So uh, we'll talk about that. Don't forget that the profile available uh, every Saturday here on Premier Christian Radio, but any time in the week via our podcast, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile if you want to go and download the show and listen back to today's episode. I'm Justin Briley, Senior Editor of Premier Christianity Magazine, and I'll be back with Andy in just a moment's time. We're on air with broadcasting legend Jeremy Vine in the latest Premier Christianity magazine as he tells us how he lost his faith and then found it again and life behind the mic on his radio and TV programmes. Plus, we profile three of the UK's fastest growing churches as they share their secrets on why their congregations are multiplying members. And as 2018 begins, read about five spiritual practices that could renew your relationship with God in the new year. All that plus news, reviews and your favourite columnists. Ask for a free copy of the January edition, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's profile. I'm Justin Briley, senior editor of Premier Christianity magazine, joined today on the show by Andy Crouch, author of The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in its proper place and we're going to be hearing more about that book in a moment's time Uh, if you're interested in the magazine where you can find more interviews with all kinds of interesting christians from around the world uh, do ask for a free sample copy of the latest edition we'll send you it for free premierchristianity.com slash free sample and uh, if you want to find the profile online as a podcast that's also available to premierchristianradio.com slash the profile Andy, we've been hearing in the first part of today's show about your upbringing and faith and then how you got into journalism and some of the pressures that are on modern journalists because of the (laughs) digital age we live in. Um, There are all kinds of other, I guess, issues around culture as well. And this is kind of where a lot of your writing is focused, is is the whole area of culture generally. You, You wrote actually an interesting article for Christianity Today a while back that I think was titled Stop Engaging the Culture Because It Doesn't Exist. <laughs> that, that caused a few raised eyebrows at the time. What, what did you mean by that? And Because most Christians think, oh, yeah, right on. Let's engage the culture. Let's engage the culture. But you're saying it doesn't exist. Yes, it doesn't exist. Uh, not in that, that phrase, the culture, <laughs> the culture. There is no thing, the culture. There are many cultures okay. which are extended traditions of human beings trying to make something of the world. And that's what culture is, Mm. what we make of the world in in the very tangible sense of the things we make, but also the quest for meaning in the world. But there's not just one. Mm. Uh, Now, when people say the culture, uh, they're often thinking, uh, they often have something in mind like Hollywood or celebrity culture. And and that's not the only culture there is, right? So first of all, we should not think that that's the only culture that matters. Um, The other problem with that, with making that part of culture our focus is most of us have no access to it uh, directly. Now, we can consume it or not consume it. Mm. We can complain about it, you know, uh, to our neighbor. But what we're omitting when we have all this focus on these very distant, you know, uh, kind of celebrity culture, mass culture, and and the people who produce it, is we're missing our actual neighbor. Mm. (laughs) So that piece was a call to actually love our neighbor, which does mean attending to all the 
sort of layers of culture that shape my neighbor's mm, life yeah. and also constrain or, or even distort my neighbor's life. So I should care about culture, yes. but I should care about the culture that actually affects my neighbor, right. not wanting to engage some distant thing that I actually have no agency in, right? So if you live in Hollywood, you should engage Hollywood. And some Christians are called to move to Hollywood and yeah. live there. But most of us don't live there. And, and then the other thing about in, that word engage, mm. um, it often is a synonym for talk about <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to actually create an alternative to. I see. And I'm much more interested in Christians asking what could we be cultivating and creating rather than just what are we sort of I, I ta- mean, talking the, about. For most church pastors, the engaging the culture basically probably means there's a new Star Wars film out. I'm going <laughs> to title my Sunday sermon Exactly, after it. the next sermon um, series. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. What, what does it mean to you then to, to be a culture maker? rather than simply a passive responder in, in that sense right. of the culture. Well, so, so it's to look around me, ask what is um, miss. Uh, well, let, let's actually start with the positive. What mm. is present in my environment that is fragile, that needs tending, that, that is conducive to the good for human beings and really all of creation? So um, if I walk out my front door and you ask me what's fragile on, on your little block in the town mm. where I live in, well, uh, there's a bunch of plants there. Uh, there's trees, there's uh, perennials, annuals. And uh, at one level, my job is to take care of those fragile plants so that we have beauty in my neighborhood, so mm. that it's a good environment for children, for people to walk by. Right? It's, it, it really does start at street level, and it starts with keeping, not making. It mm. just starts, stops, uh, it starts with keeping something good that's already good. Now, this also would, then I'd, maybe I walk down the street to my children's school. What's good in my children's school mm. that's fragile, that could be lost if, if say, I don't volunteer and help yeah. support it? So that's the cultivating and keeping yeah. side. And then I go to work and I ask the same thing, mm. right? But then there's also the making side, which is I should look at all these uh, sort of uh, layers or levels or spheres and ask what's missing that is causing human beings to not flourish in the way they should. So... Um, you know, maybe I, I discovered that, that the street my house is on, the traffic goes by too fast. And if we just installed a stop sign, it would be safer for the children. Mm. We'd have more relationships with our neighbors because people could cross the street. Mm. Um, so, so that would be culture making, right? Mm. That would be adding something to the environment that actually helps human beings flourish. And then you do that at the school and at the workplace and when you go shopping. And, uh, and you might ask, what's n- what product is not on these shelves that if it were here? Uh, would actually be good for human beings. Well, do I have some friends where we could make that product? Yeah, yeah. So that's culture making. Yeah. Uh, that's engaging the culture because you're paying very close attention mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. how human beings are flourishing and not. And you're, you're quite aware that uh, it's, we don't just get to make this up as we go along. We inherit uh, culture from the past and we have to steward it for the future. But you're not just engaging it in the sense of just sort of talking about it. You're actually actively keeping mm-hmm. and actively mm-hmm. making. I guess the person who perhaps influenced the culture the most in history is Jesus Christ. He, in a sense, Christian Christian culture, if you like, that has shaped the Western world and more, um, was largely down to the things he said and did. Um, Absolutely. uh, But the problem is that after centuries, in a sense of that vision, shaping our culture in terms of art, history and music in in that wide sense of culture, it feels today like, Christians somehow lost that and have kind of seceded the culture to all kinds of others. And if we are creating things artistically, it tends to be we're playing catch up now with yes. with others. You know, yes, so we're, that's right. we're the worship band pretending to be Coldplay. Or, yes, or about three years after Coldplay, like stops really being a big thing. Exactly. Or, <laughs> or we're creating, you know, quote unquote Christian films, uh, yes. which may be yes. kind of just aren't quite up to scratch with what people you know see as really true truly artistic or, so, or whatever it might be yeah another huge question but what, <laughs> what what's what is the role for christians then how would you conceive them changing the way they do things so that we're not simply imitating the culture but oh. we're actually trying to 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 put christianity back in a sense in, in a creative way at the center well, I think it starts in a way, I might say, on the demand side, to use a business kind of language, which is that, uh, to be totally candid, um, Christians need to start expecting better from one another. Hmm. Uh, we've become satisfied with mediocrity, to be honest, in uh, not least artistically, but I would say also architecturally. Uh, I mean, 
I, a very simple thing. I, I don't know if the church you go to even has a bulletin. Not all churches do these days. But, we do. Uh, I would guess the typography in it is uh, really horrible. <laughs> that is the design, the attention, very little attention to design. And mm. no disrespect to the, mm. the faithful people who put mm. that together. Mm. But we don't ask for excellence in how we use type, how we use print, how we shape mm. the space around mm. us. And then what kind of music do we make? And we lost our demand for that, I think, partly because that kind of excellence got associated with a certain cultural elite, which at least uh, certainly in the U.S., uh, Christians were in some ways systematically excluded from that elite. And of course, when any of us are excluded from something, one of our reactions is to say, well, I didn't care about your club anyway. And, And I don't care about your high standards for art and design. We're not about that. We're plain people. And I understand that reaction, but what it's led to is a toleration for mediocrity in our cultural production that is not worthy of the glory of God, honestly. Mm-hmm. So um, now why is why are our so-called Christian movies so lame? It's because that's what Christians pay for. And the studios look at the numbers and they say, well, if we put up a number, uh, another kind of dumb uh, you know, Amish romance uh, out into the novel market. Novel buyers will buy it. Now, I don't know <laughs> if they buy it in the UK, but in the US, Amish romances are a huge publishing category. They're all the same story. You know, they're written by well-meaning people. They're read by well-meaning people. Um, but it, the market has to change. And then you do need probably several generations, honestly, of people who apprentice uh, to excellence, and and you don't you don't waltz in at the top level and instantly be able to make excellence. You have to apprentice your way up. Um, so it's going to be a long yeah. process to regain yeah. kind of Christian cultural excellence. But I, some I, people are doing I, it. I was going to say, I think there are there are good signs on yes. that front. People who have said, okay, I'm I'm not going to be part of this subculture that that kind of exists to feed itself. I, Absolutely. I want to be. An amazing example would be uh, Jean Wen Yang, who uh, won a MacArthur Genius Grant uh, this past year. He's a graphic novelist, uh, Catholic Christian, very shaped by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, mm-hmm. which I was in in college uh, as he was. Um, and he has created a series of graphic novels that are absolutely the most beautiful use of that form. Uh, one is called American Born Chinese. It's about the Asian American experience. Another very rich, textured one is called The Boxer Rebellion. And they they draw on his Asian uh, Chinese heritage, but kind of bring it into conversation with the West, have a kind of layer of Christian faith Mm. present, though not um, kind of overplayed. Mm. He is the next uh, um, person drawing, I believe it's Superman for Marvel Comics or I don't know all the the producers, but um, he's he's been picked to do the next series of this major kind of iconic cultural a landmark in mm. graphic novels and, and comics because he does such excellent work yeah. and he brings mm. uh, unselfconscious, yeah. confident Christian yeah. faith yeah. to that. Before we talk about your, your latest book, one more thing I wanted to touch on because you mentioned celebrity culture. Yeah. Um, it's sort of been going through, just in the last couple of months, some kind of a huge confessional of, yes. its, of its dirty secrets. Yeah. Um, the Harvey huh. Weinstein scandal yeah. and the abuse that it emerged that he had perpetrated yes. on many women yes. has suddenly opened the floodgates to all kinds of other yes. celebrities, um, people being willing to come forward and talk about what they have, have gone through as well. Um, yeah. Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., yes. here in the UK, there have been various people who have been under the spotlight. It's been quite remarkable to see, really, suddenly yeah. the, the, the floodgates opening. You've written books on the use and abuse of power um, and of course you've written many books on culture what, what's going on at this moment it has is there almost suddenly we've remembered that actually we have this thing called uh, dignity and respect and the Christian culture that maybe we shed in the sexual revolution wasn't all bad at some level <laughs> I, d- I don't know what's what's going on well, it's a it's a painful, painful thing to watch. Uh, it's absolutely necessary because it's just the truth. Mm. You know, you use the word confessional. I understand why you used it, but I, I wonder if it's not quite a strong enough word because, of course, a confessional is somewhere you go voluntarily <laughs> to repent. And these uh, individuals have, have, if they've repented at all, have done so under incredible duress yeah. and pressure and shame. Mm. Uh, and it's very doubtful. It's not clear any of them have even know what it would be to fully Mm. repent. Mm. I mean, going to treatment is not Mm. the same thing as a a deep repentance. Um, 
and and I think what's happening is a kind of catharsis because all abuses of power are are ultimately associated with violence, and it doesn't necessarily have to be literal physical violence. Mm-hmm. Violence is violation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I wrote a book called Playing God about uh, the use and abuse of power. And and that book was actually trying to offer a hopeful account of power. There are ways to use power in a healthy way. But the unhealthy way is to play not the true God, but to play a false God. And our Christian word for this is idol. And all idols work for a while. And they, they seem to deliver to their worshipers what their worshipers want. So Harvey Weinstein was... For a while, the, the most powerful man, at least in a certain kind of Hollywood, the kind everyone aspired to be, the Oscar-winning Hollywood, mm-hmm. the serious art film Hollywood, not just the blockbusters, right? And he was um, himself, and for people who kind of attached themselves to him, a way to power. But to the extent that these individuals or whole systems are false gods, they are always going to end up violating people. And that's what he was able to do. And the more powerful you get, the more impunity you have when you violate people. Um, now, the great gift, in a way, is that idols fail. <laughs> and so now what we're watching is the failure of idols. Now, the interesting thing about Harvey Weinstein is people have had these stories for 20 years. Mm. But it didn't come out until his star was beginning to fade, until he was less able to benefit people. He was becoming less powerful, less mm. effective. Um, and as he fails, then all these other dominoes start to fall. And you realize how much violence and violation was concealed behind that apparent success. It's a healthy thing to have happen. The only problem is I don't know that there's that much evidence that people are turning back to the true God in it. And so uh, I think it's creating a vacuum that that could just honestly be filled with more and more recrimination and more and more shame. And while I have no doubt that the current slate of allegations are entirely true, it's not impossible that others for whom the allegations are not true will be caught up in it. Mm. Uh, and that you'll end up with this kind of attempt to purge the the, the uh, sin from the community, which mm-hmm. is scapegoating, and you end up actually targeting people who are not uh, uh, culpable. So it really could get out of hand in a very dangerous way, but what's happening at the moment is just absolutely necessary naming of violence. I, I kind of find it as well that there's a sort of a bitter irony, though, in Hollywood and media culture kind of suddenly naming and shaming and putting all these you know people as they should be you know to take into task but at the same time it's within a culture where we have put sexualization and pornography and everything (laughs) into people's laps where we've told we've basically given them every opportunity to treat women as sexually sexual objects and then we call them to tasks when they do that in their private lives so for me there's a there's a sort of a well Something's wrong at the heart of culture. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's... (laughs) And once you see it, it, it's so distorted. But when you're inside that system, uh, inside that system, the whole world of porn, which is 30-plus percent of internet traffic, all right? I mean, this is just stunning how much Mm. space of our world is taken up by just exploitation mm. but but the 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 thought is well but that's consensual or or because it's mediated mm. there's mm. there's a distance between the but there's user always a power of play isn't there there absolutely is and it's the idol of our time but of course to acknowledge that idol would, would see the sexual revolution is still working for elites mm. uh, elites are benefiting from uh, the freedom to arrange their sexual lives in the way they want it's not working at all for the vulnerable right uh, whether that's women uh, or whether it's people who are materially poor uh, or people who don't have intact families to kind of buffer them from um, unrelated real male relatives who are the greatest danger to any young person is an unrelated uh, male who's nonetheless in the house. Mm. Um, and yet that those people are in the house all over our culture and they're all watching porn, all of them. Yeah. And then they're abusing the vulnerable. But to really name that whole system would be – that would be repentance and that would be confession rather than just getting outed for yeah. something that you did yeah. that, that now you're ashamed of. You're far too interesting <laughs> because we've, we've – the time has escaped us and we haven't properly talked about the TechWise family. Though that, That's subject, a nice way of saying I'm su- taking too long answering no, no, your questions. No, it's not at all. It's <laughs> the, I, I've been just fascinated by all your answers. But you, the subject you touch on there, the, the – you know. Com- complete preponderance of porn on the internet is is obviously part of the TechWise family. This is a book aimed at, as you say, putting technology back in its proper place. (laughs) You 
begin the book by explaining you you're you've always been a bit of a neat freak and like things <laughs> yes. being put in their proper place. Yes, everything and, should be in its and, proper place. Yes. And that technology is no different. Um, but we've we're in the midst of a technological revolution that has almost the fastest sort of revolution we've ever seen. Yes. And exactly as you say right. in the book, it's outstripped our wisdom to know how to deal with it. Completely. Because suddenly, the main source of information 24-7 that our, we and our young people especially are getting is via tablets, screens, social media. And we're just completely unprepared for it, aren't we? Absolutely. So. And, I, and, you know, I wouldn't even – I would extend it. Information, entertainment – distraction, and most powerfully, connection, mm. feeling connected to other people Absolutely. without actually being with them. Yeah. And and this bundle of human needs suddenly can be satisfied with these devices that are omnipresent in our lives. I'm using one just to hey, look at my questions Right here for with you. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how many conversations now are quasi-mediated by a glowing rectangle in the room? Yeah. Um, and we know that even if it's in your pocket, it changes the way you relate to other people. Just mm. knowing it's in your pocket... Mm. Um, sort of diffuses your attention and you're suddenly half attending to this thing that could go off and buzz at you Mm -hmm. and might have something more interesting than the person you're actually with and it it changes the way you relate and and let alone if it's out on the table Uh, even face down on the table Mm. it changes the conversation it says this thing here might mean that i can't attend to you any longer and that that ultimately has some kind of a psychological impact doesn't it i mean i think there have been studies about the amount of time now that parents actually spend looking at their children oh, versus looking absolutely. at their screen absolutely. and what children have to do to get their parents' attention. And I hold my hand up here. I'm, I'm a parent of four we have, children. Oh, we've all been there. We've all been there. Because, so, you know, these things glow. And by the way, we've never had glowing things until <laughs> the last hundred years when we invented luminescence, right? Yes. The only thing that glowed in all of human history was a fire. Mm. A, a, a hearth or you know, a fireplace. Which is a naturally socially bonding yes, thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I really think we're not even neurologically prepared to have all these things glowing at us all the time rather than just the reflected light that that bounces off, you know, you, for mm. example. If there's a glowing rectangle version of you, I'm going to be looking at it, not at you. So we we are not ready for this, but it's everywhere. So what this book is about is how do we put this back in the... It has a proper place. There are ways that these screens are, mm. and, and other devices are tremendously useful. But how do we keep them, uh, in a sense, away from the heart of our lives, mm. which is our relationship with each other, our, our growing in our own capacities in the world, which these devices don't generally help us do. They don't mm. help us grow. Um, they don't help us become who we want to become. Uh, that happens in three dimensions. That happens with the whole body engaged. That happens in conversation. Mm. Um, and devices provide this very tantalizing substitute for actually becoming a different kind of person. Mm. You give some very practical ways in which we can hmm. moderate and think about the way we engage. And as a, in your own family, I think, you, you took the step of actually changing the way your rooms and things were laid <laughs> out in order th- that you could that technology and, and those opportunities to be distracted weren't the prime thing that were, were on offer, uh, that they took their proper place, as you say. So just explain yeah. what, what you tried to do. We rearranged our furniture, kind mm. of literally, and yeah. rearranged our home. We have uh, three stories, really, a, a basement and then a, a living area and then bedrooms. And we put all the glowing rectangles uh, in the basement. <laughs> so when you walk into the first floor of our little home at all you'll see are uh, opportunities for creativity and skill. So okay. there's a grand piano that we bought with our children's savings, mm. uh, college savings. <laughs> Figured I'd much rather them have a piano than go to university. So uh, they had a piano all the time they were growing up. A craft table with art supplies. We do it. We were very fortunate to have a fireplace in mm. that little living area. And, of course, a kitchen where we cook. Mm. And the, the goal of this, so there's no television. Mm-hmm. There are no uh, computers permanently installed. Uh, if we bring a laptop into that area, it has to go back at dinner time okay. and get plugged in at the edges. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to have the center of our life uh, call forth skill and engagement from us rather than offer kind of distraction and passivity to us. Mm. For the parents and the kids, by the way. This is not just, um, people sometimes think, oh, I need this book to help figure out screen time limits for my children. Mm. And I say, no, no, this is screen time limits for mom and dad as well. It's the whole family needs to have ways of relating. So really rearranging your furniture around the kind of life you want to have, which all of us, what we really want is deep relationships with each other Mm. and times of creativity with each other. 
Um, but if we're not very careful, uh, we'll let those things kind of sneak their way in and take over the main spaces of our lives. Indeed. And I, I think that that is the challenge because there's no doubt that an iPad is the quickest way to get your two-year-old to, ah, to, to be quiet. Completely. Um, you know, uh, so you can get on with that important thing you need to do. So, of course, there's the constant temptation to, to use it as a sort of form of passive you know, a pacifier, if you like. It is the modern pacifier. How, Completely. How, is that just up to parents to just sort of say, actually, I need, I need to understand that this is not necessarily the, the best overall strategy yes. for parenting? So this is the really hard thing about this is it really is not about the kids. It's about us yeah. who are parents. And it's about our deciding, do I want easy today <laughs> or do I want lasting growth in the long run? Mm. So... If I need my two-year-old to be quiet so I can get something done, if I want that to happen today, the only way to reliably get it to happen is hand them a glowing rectangle. But what if I want a life in which my child is able to entertain themselves, is able to, you know, be quiet when, they, when I need some time to focus on something, um, is able to sort of modulate their own need for entertainment, knows what to do when they're bored then if I give them that glowing rectangle today, I'm not helping them grow mm. at all. Now, mm. I've solved my problem today, yeah. and in a way I feel like I've mm. solved their problem, mm. but, but this means I'm not committed to my child actually growing. And I understand why we all take these shortcuts, mm-hmm. but we have to realize it is a shortcut. And, and then we have to believe that on the other side of the difficult choice to disengage from the devices is actually for all of us a life in which we're more capable of doing difficult things, like being quiet for a while, reading quietly as a three-year-old, mm-hmm. let's say, or knowing what to do when there doesn't seem to be anything to do when you're five years old. And you can have a child who grows up into I, that. I remember being bored when I was ah, a child. I absolutely. Mean, but it was probably quite good for you. Well, because all creativity is on the other side of boredom. Yeah. So all creativity happens after that moment when you say, I don't know what to do. There's nothing to do. And we know as writers, right, it's the blank page, which is a terrifying thing. And you feel this boredom. And and now you can distract yourself Mm. anytime you want. Mm. But now if you never get to that blank page, you never get past it to discover what you could make with that blank page. And so Mm. for our own children, we need to teach them, you know what, I'm going to let you be bored because on the other side of that is something I would never have thought of for you to do that will be so fun and engaging. You'll make up a game. You'll start (laughs) telling a story. You'll start writing a story. You'll start painting a picture. Uh, But the glowing rectangles now give us the option to never be bored, which means we never get to creativity. I just love the fact you call them glowing rectangles, (laughs) which is a perfect description of what they are. The... Whether you're listening to this on a glowing rectangle or not, um, I do hope you've enjoyed today's uh, edition of The Profile. And please do get hold of a copy of The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps of Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. Uh, the author, Andy Crouch, has been my guest on the show today. And it's been a real delight to get to know you a bit, Andy, and to, to hear about your life. Well, really a pleasure, Justin. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget, uh, this programme brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Ask for a free sample copy at our website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And if you'd like to listen back to today's programme, we're available as a podcast on one of those glowing rectangles. (laughs) You can listen again at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Coming up next, Dave Rose with Premier Playback.